Hey, Pastor Mike, it's Fred. I got your assignment for the pastor's meeting for today, the reading, and so I thought I would just read it out loud so that I could hear it for myself and then give you my feedback on it in preparation. Um, So it looks like we are studying about the doctrine of baptism. And there's this article from 1978. Wow. Interesting. So I guess it's talking about how doctrine of baptism has changed. There's like three of these articles that you sent me. So that's going to make for a long read. So I'm going to split this into two sections where I will, um, yeah, I will read it. I just got a text. Um, I will read it, and then I will give my feedback in the second half. So, um, here we go. Basic religious influences. In the post-apostolic age of the second century, an apostasy began that touched most Christian doctrines, leaving hardly a single biblical truth free of Jewish or pagan ingredients. Uh, Many factors aided the process. Um, one major influence was superstition, which associated associated itself with the numerous pagan uh, mystery cults, where sacred rites performed by an initiated priesthood with a mystic efficacy conveyed quote spiritual cleansing as a materialistic concept of the baptismal water entered the church. The significance of the scriptural teaching of repentance in the life of the recipient was reduced. The growing belief in the mechanical efficacy of baptism went hand in hand with a failure to understand the New Testament concept of salvation by grace alone. So Christian parents who believed in the mystical, magical power of baptism administered the, quote, sanctifying water as early as possible in the lives of their children. On the other hand, the same concept made some parents postponed the act of, of baptism in fear of post, post-baptismal sin. For this reason, the Emperor Constantine was first baptized on his deathbed because he believed that his soul would be purified of whatever errors he had committed as a mortal man through the efficacy of the mystical words and the salutary waters of baptism. However, the practice of infant baptism gradually became more firmly established, especially after the church father Augustine, who died in 8430, for those of you who are dying to know, uh, undergirded the mystical efficacy of infant baptism with the doctrine of original sin. So, next paragraph here we're talking about is post-Nicene fathers. The next paragraph after that is the conflict over rebaptism, and then the next paragraph after that is the unity of church and state, then the mode of baptism, and that's it. So, let us continue. The post-Nicene Fathers coming up next.
So now we talk about the post-Nicene Fathers. In the period of the post-Nicene Fathers, between 381 and 600, adult baptism continued along with infant baptism until the latter became the commonplace in the 5th century. Bishop Ambrose of Milan, died in 397, was first baptized at the age of 34, even though he was the son of Christian parents. Both uh, Chrysostom and Jerome were in their 20s when they were baptized, about AD 360. Basil said that any time in one's life is proper for baptism, and Gregory of Nasanius, when answering the question, shall we baptize infants, compromised by saying, certainly if danger threatens, for it is better to be sanctified unconsciously than to depart this life unsealed and uninitiated. However, when no danger of death existed, his judgment was that they should wait until they are three years old when it is possible for them to hear and answer something about the sacrament. For then, even if uh, they do not completely understand yet, they will receive the outlines. This statement reflects the ever-present theological dilemma when one seeks to adhere both to the New Testament prerequisites of baptism, which is the personal hearing and acceptance of the gospel by faith, and the belief in a magical efficacy of the baptismal water itself. And so the latter concept gained the upper hand when Augustine made infant baptism cancel the guilt of original sin and was more solidly established as the church developed the idea of sacramental grace, which is the view that sacraments serve as a vehicle for divine grace. So the historical development of infant baptism in the ancient church marked a milestone at the Council of Carthage in 418. And for the first time, a council prescribed the right of infant baptism. So if you're with your friends and you're standing around and you guys are shooting the breeze and you don't have anything to talk about other than the weather, you can say, you know, that Council of Carthage in 418... And you'll remember immediately that for the first time, a council prescribed the right of infant baptism. If any man says that newborn children need not be baptized, let him be anathema, 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 which sounds terrible. You don't even have to know what the word means. It just sounds terrible. Okay, so now we're moving on to the next place here, and it is the conflict over rebaptism. So welcome back. So in the middle of the third century, the Church of North Africa faced the question of the validity of a baptism administered in a uh, schismatic or heretical church. Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, and other bishops decided at two councils at Carthage in 255 and 256 that, quote, heretics and, quote, schismatics who wanted to join the Catholic Church should be baptized anew. Stephen, or Stephen, the bishop of Rome, he opposed the concept and threatened the African bishops with excommunication 
declaring that the validity of the baptismal act depended only on the proper formula and intention. Further, the virtue of baptism would be realized when the person joined the one true Catholic Church. The issue that had subsided by the death of Stephen in 257 and Cyprian in 258, but was revived early in the 5th century among the Donatists in North Africa. The Donatists claimed to be the only true Catholic Church in distinction to the established church with its whole, with its worldliness and lack of discipline, those from the established church who wanted to join the pure church were requested to be rebaptized. The unity of the church, which Constantine so much needed in order to glue his empire together, was threatened by the Donatist schism. So the church council he convened after becoming ruler of the West Roman Empire dealt with the issue at Ares in 314 AD, this council opposed rebaptism. So, coming up next, we're going to talk about the unity of church and state. Stay tuned. When Constantine accepted Christianity and later made it the favorite religion of the empire he sought, to fuse together church and state into a homogenous Christian society. The process begun by him was continued by succeeding Christian emperors. In such a society, all citizens must be considered Christians to wait for the voluntary decision of the individual would contradict the very nature of the state church. Further, a church in homogenous unity with the state cannot dispense with compulsion. The, quote, Christian emperors already found infant baptism in existence. They believe that the act of baptism makes one a Christian. Therefore, it is easy to understand how infant baptism gradually became the cornerstone of the established church in a Christian society, just as circumcision had been the covenant sign among Israelites. The great cleavage in the Church of North Africa regarding the rebaptism continued into the 5th century. At the suggestion of Augustine, the Emperor Honorius called a meeting in Carthage in 411 with nearly 300 bishops on both the Catholic and the Donatist sides present. The outcome of this, the discussion was prejudiced by the presence of the emperor's representative who declared the Donatists wrong in requiring rebaptism. Two years later, March 413, Honorius joined the Emperor Theodosius in reissuing a law regarding rebaptism. This law formed a part of the Theodosian Code, a collection of 60 laws against heretics with exile, confiscation of property, and corporal punishment among the penalties for heresy. A similar law was issued again in 428. Most significant is the legal code, the Corpus Jurius Civilis, by Emperor Justinian. This code incorporated ecclesiastical decrees of the emperors and doctrinal uh, resolutions of church councils into the civil laws of the state, thus transforming them into judicial statutes to be enforced by the secular power, 
a whole section of the code deals with the question of rebaptism, specifying capital punishment as the penalty for this act. Since the Code of Justinian was adopted by the, quote, Christianized countries of the Western Europe, it is not surprising that the law against heretics found application century after century. In fact, when Roman Catholics and Protestant reformers alike sanctioned capital punishment for Anabaptists in the 16th century, they did so on the strength of the Justinian Code. Coming up next, we're going to be looking at the mode of baptism. So, stay tuned. The word baptism comes from the Greek baptizo, which is, quote, to dip or to, quote, to immerse. Accordingly, we find only one mode of baptism in the New Testament, which is immersion. The form continued to be the most common for more than 13 centuries, as reference upon reference upon from the Church Fathers demonstrates uh, Thomas Aquinas, the foremost Catholic theologian, asserted in his Summa Theologiae that, quote, baptism may be given not only by immersion, but also by a fusion of water or sprinkling with it. But it is the safer way to baptize by immersion because that is the most common custom. Baptizers or baptistries in ancient churches up to the time of Reformation tell us that baptism was performed by immersion even when infant baptism was practiced. However, sprinkling became even more common. Luther thought, sought to restore immersion, but did not succeed. In England and Scotland, sprinkling was not practiced until after the Reformation, and the practice of immersion continues in the Eastern churches to the present. Baptism by sprinkling or pouring came to be known as, quote, clinical baptism because it was first primarily used for those who were sick. No doubt, um, because of bodily weakness, the practice was used also on infants. However, sprinkling can also be traced to pagan rites. When the water of baptism became charged with a mysterious virtue, which gave it a quasi-spiritual efficacy, operating more or less mechanically, the realistic symbolism of baptism was by immersion was lost. So, in conclusion, yet the Apostle Paul in the epistle in to the Romans uh, points out that the rite of baptism by immersion expresses the symbolically our personal faith in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. The essence of baptism on the human side wrought by the Holy Spirit is a renunciation of self or burial of the old man and a resurrection to a new life in which the power of the resurrected Lord is at work. Only believers' baptism by immersion can realistically symbolize the theological essence of the biblical doctrine of baptism.
I want to thank you for joining me, Alfred DeCosta, your host of the L4H podcast. My um, feedback on this article is when we look at the things of God and the things of man, and we look at the fact that we are imperfect and that God is perfect, we look at the requirement of salvation, which equals perfection. We look at our inability to accomplish that. We look to Jesus to be able to do that for us, in us, and through us with a whole bunch of other um, deepened um, clarification for whatever you might be thinking right now. And the fact of the matter is that we slight God's stuff because we always put our dirty, messy mark on things. And so whenever we see something, we're like, well, since we're not capable of doing it perfectly, we just, we just make, we just choose to not honor it fully. That goes for everything. But what we don't realize is, yes, we're not asked to be perfect. Christ already did that. But it has to do with us is our heart, our heart intention. Despite the fact that the, the, the translation from our heart to our hands doesn't always add up, like we might have good intentions in our hearts and we might mess up and, and really screw something up because of our limited understanding. Yes, by the standard of the court of law, you are hereby hitherto punished or banished or you, you pay for, you know, the crime, um, whether it was intentional or unintentional. But with God, sometimes people don't know better. And so, but their, their heart intention is right. And I believe that God doesn't accept substitutes, but I do know that he will enter into the arena of a person whose intentions are right and lead them out of out of bondage or Babylon or whatever you may say. For example, Saul, who was turned to Paul, he was for sure that he was doing the right thing. He was destroying and killing and, and you know, these Christianizers. And then he gets this, this wake up call, you know, getting knocked off of a, in a, uh, his horse or donkey or whatever. And there's this bright light that blinds him so much that it, it cauterizes his 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 eyeballs and makes these 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 coverings that he can't see. Everybody hears the voice, and it's Jesus saying, "Why is it that you persecute me?" And so I think God leads the the honest heart. But I think no matter what the circumstance may be, God reads the heart, and he it's the it's the spirit of truth. And so there's, yes, the thing called your truth, which is a completely different thing than God's truth. But if you have an honest heart that truly wants the truth, I believe God hears that and moves into action to bring about the the spirit of truth that we can understand. So all of this to say, we look at the, the mode of baptism. We look at baptism altogether and we see how it's been twisted and we ask the question and then we make it we kind of go both ways wrong you know two wrongs don't make a right but at the same time two negative make a positive when we talk about the conductivity of electricity but when you think about two wrongs don't make a right on the 
pagan side, or let's say the, not pagan, let's say the heart of the Christian that is unconverted, the one that, that says that is willing to compromise in their heart. They don't stand on the fact that their heart intention is to do what God asks, despite the fact that they may not get it right always. And so that person says, well, it's not a big deal. Just sprinkle them, okay? Just sprinkle them, get it over with. And especially with some of the explanations here with the fact that, you know, it was called clinical baptism, which is fantastic. There's always these little gray areas that slip their way in and they come with an initial good intention. But then what happens is that over time, they get twisted and flipped. And you notice that the circumstances for these exceptions always come about with the threat of death. You know, this person's on their deathbed. They can't be baptized. So we need to just sprinkle them where they're at. And the honest, true heart knows that, you know, this person really can't do any better. But we take that and we twist that and we, we make, it, uh, make it applicable in all areas. And then we lose the meaning of baptism. And that takes me to the other side, which is the, the, the Christian with the good intention that gets stuck on the symbol. And, and how, how even in the pagan rite, that it was kind of mystified, that there was a special virtue that was injected into um, the sprinkling. And so then you get into this mystical and you're trying to protect it because we know what the word of God says. And baptism is the way. That's just the way. But, but then we take that symbol and we try to protect it so much so that we begin to lose its meaning. So, so now we're, we're killing people. We're killing people who are not understanding the clear words of the Bible that it's got to be immersion, bro. And we see that it, you know, it's happening with, with some of the logic, like back in the day, uh, with these Nicene fathers who, from year after year after year, century and century, how these ideas got molded and how they they stood on the idea that well, you know, I think it was um, Aquinas that that quoted that you know well, you know. Um, it's better that even though they don't understand, which is he, his premise is spot on, that the reason why we don't baptize that young is because they don't understand. They don't understand what's going on. So obviously, it's got to be a consent of the heart. This is deeper than just the symbol of water. It's the consent of the heart publicly that I choose God. And it represents the symbol of God, of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And so we always take, because we're human, we're not perfect, and we take these tenets. And so he says, well, it's better they just be baptized unknowingly. So he even comes out with the truth in his lie. You know, it's better that than to, to, to risk it. And so it's like, it's the pain of death that causes us to go into these gray areas. It's it's the risk it factor, the risk it factor, and when we have it, it's an unclear understanding of the word of God, and 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 that's where we need to go to Him in labor and prayer, and so all of this to say that um, I don't remember what I was going to say, but pretty much you know there's the two issues of how to baptize and when to baptize.
and we lose the meaning of baptism altogether. And so I'll probably remember later when this is done with. So I want to thank you for listening. Alfred DeCosta, your host of the L4H podcast, over and out. Thank you.